sure. The rent is too damn high. But are we currently in a housing crisis? Or is the housing market working exactly as it was intended to work? And is tenant organizing the solution? Like, should I be trying to unionize my building? Welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with my co-host, Kristen Pugh. On our very first episode of our brand new season, we were joined by Ricardo Tranjan of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives to talk everything housing. Ricardo just wrote a fantastic new book called The Tenant Class, which makes the argument that tenants are an exploited class and calls for more tenant organizing as a solution. I loved this book. I loved the way he talked about how the market is working exactly as it's intended to. I loved the way he talked about how supply isn't the problem, even though that's where all of our policy seems to be going. And that instead of building more housing, what we actually need is like more regulation for the economically exploited tenant class in our world where landlord profits are skyrocketing. And I just... I absolutely loved it. And I'm really excited for everyone to have a listen. Definitely. Yeah, I think Ricardo did such a good job in this book and in our conversation of sort of taking that it's all about the supply argument to task. And I mean, making the case that really more market housing anyway isn't going to solve the problem. What we need is social housing in addition to the regulations you talked about. Um, So I thought it was a really fantastic conversation. I learned a lot. And also Ricardo is just so charismatic and fun. And before we get started, we actually have a a very exciting announcement. This is season two of our revamped sort of uh, uh, podcast style. And uh, our first season was a huge success. And hello to all of our new listeners. And, you know, hello to all of our our long term, our long term listeners who've been with us for, you know, a couple of years. Happy fourth anniversary, Kristen. It's our four year anniversary. We started in 2019. A lot of this, a lot of stuff has happened. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> and to celebrate our fourth year, I've finally decided to open up a Patreon account for us so that uh, our supporters can shoot us a couple of bucks a month and we can pay like this costs money to do and it's a, a hobby and we love doing it. And it's something that because it's an educational project and Kristen is a genius. We want to like share her knowledge. (laughs) Don't shake your head at me. (laughs) (laughs) And to get us started, uh, we're actually going to run like a little contest when we get to, I think I'm going to do 10 subscribers. When we get to 10 Patreon subscribers, I will do a draw and send one of our graffitied books uh, that we've done on the podcast to somebody. So if you sign up for Patreon, shoot us a message at pullbackpod at gmail.com. And I'll do a little draw once we get to just 10, just 10. It's easy. 10, it's like one in 10 chance of getting a free book that is, and I won't send Waste Free World, even though that one has the most notes in it, unless you really want it. (laughs) It's a good thing we haven't done the Bill Gates book yet. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's the one I'll send out to people just as a little, little treat. Let's get started. Ricardo, thank you so much for talking to us today about your fantastic book, The Tenant Class. Uh, We both loved it. First question for you, is Canada in a housing crisis right now? There's a lot of people in Canada right now experiencing hardship of the worst kind. A lot of people who do not have a place to go to. And the end of the day, people struggling to pay rent uh, and worry that if they pay rent, there's not going to be money enough for anything else. And they will have to cut short on food and not buy the jacket that the kid needs to go to school and be warm all winter. Um, And those are real experiences. um, And those are real, it's real hardship. And I don't mean to belittle it. But I don't think it's useful to categorize it as a crisis because when we call it a crisis, we have this impression that it's something new and it's something unexpected, whereas the housing market has been structuring the same way for many, many decades and the things getting worse slowly. We're watching 
governments are choosing not to intervene. Um, also, when we talk about a crisis, we have the sense that everyone's impacted, or that most people are impacted, right? Like, like we think about COVID right now, you know, COVID, everyone was impacted one way or another. Um, and also with, with the housing market right now, it's not everyone that is negative and impacted. Some people are making a lot of money out of this. Uh, a lot of people don't want anything else, things to change. Many people are safely housed, securely housed in homes whose values are appreciating tremendously, which will make them very comfortable in the retirement. Um, and there's only one group that is mostly negatively impacted, and it's the group of, of, of people who rent or people who are unhoused. Um, and then finally, I think it's not useful to call it a crisis because a crisis, we kind of tend to think about something that everyone wants to solve something that we wanted, or everyone kind of wants it to go away because it's a crisis and, and we kind of want to be done with it as soon as possible. And again, that couldn't be farthest from the truth. There's people right now from in certain industries who are actively lobbying for things to remain the same. They're benefiting tremendously. And just last week, I was reading a, a investor company talking about, like a real estate investment company. It was their, their report back to their investors. And they were openly saying like, oh, this crisis is not going away anytime soon. There's a lot of money to be made. So keep investing, keep giving us your money. So they're actively involved in, in preserving things the way they are or making them worse if that will increase the margins of return. So I don't think calling it a crisis, it's useful. And I, I want to get into the argument in the book is that it's more impactful to talk about it as like a, a market that's working and to talk about it in the lens of class struggle. But just before we get into that broader theme, you also talk about the the problem with talking about the housing crisis, if you want to use the, that term, as a problem of supply. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why that is a problem. That's the dominant narrative right now in Canada. Just yesterday, I was watching the prime minister make some announcements related to, to a housing program and, and, and clearly state to folks and say, we haven't built enough housing and that's why they're expensive. And unfortunately, that is a really disingenuous statement. I'm, I'm sure that someone with his knowledge and his access to expertise knows that there's a many other factors that have contributed to making housing so expensive, that has contributed to making rents so expensive. The problem with that argument, the supply and demand argument, is that it's very, very intuitive. Right. It, it sounds like, you know, the notion of supply and demand, everyone has come across somehow and, and, and they relate to it. And so, yeah, if there's not enough things, the prices go up. And if there's too many people wanting something, the prices go up. But there's if a lot of it, the prices go down. And the problem with that is twofold. First, it's not true. <laughs> it's way more complicated than that. Right. So so the, 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 the prime minister coming in saying, Cities are getting on the way of building more housing, and that's why we're not building as much housing. And now it's too expensive. It's incredibly disingenuous. There's a lot of policies related to the securitization of mortgages, meaning how mortgages are insured and who is allowed to insure to 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 provide mortgages and so on and so forth. That has changed since the 1980s, and that has made mortgages a lot more accessible. And mortgages being a lot more accessible, interest rates being really low, mortgages being insured by third-party government agencies like the CMHC, it just makes you know mortgages very easily available, credit very attainable, to the point that when you go buy a house and you say, ah, oh, it's 200000 and then they ask, like, no, could you pay 230 instead? Your bank's going to give you that additional 30,000 you're gonna you know finance it over 30 years it's not gonna make a difference so you're willing to do that and if you're willing to do that so the next time someone's gonna ask to 40 and to 50 so there's a lot there that explains the the the, the, the kind of a little bit the, the rising prices for example and and with rent is the same thing there, there's a lot more to than than just supply and demand in the world of like financialized capitalism a lot of the small condo apartments in Toronto and Vancouver, those little, little, little condos, they're literally safety boxes. They're like, they're a place to park money. No one ever needs to leave there, you know? Just think about folks that have too much money 
and they have investment portfolios that must be diversified. They invest in all sorts of things. And now they have still like sitting on money and they're like, oh, we need to do something with it. And then like, oh, buy that condo and that condo and that condo. Get me 10 of those because I need to park money somewhere. And whether people in it or not, doesn't matter. Like it's, they're literally safety boxes, right? So, so there's a lot more to this supply and demand argument. But in the end, is a self-serving argument because you have to kind of follow the arguments, right? The problem is supply. Okay, so let's build more housing. And how is that we're going to build more housing? That's how, how is that we're going to build a lot more housing in fast? We're going to give more incentives, more subsidies, more tax breaks, more public land to developers and to landlords. And they will build us out of this crisis, right? So all of a sudden, you have managed to make the real estate investors, the private sector, that has put so many people at this very insecure financial position by hiking up prices, by increasing profit margins, by demanding too much return on, on investment and too fast. Now you're portraying them as our saviors, as the people who are going to get out of, uh, out of this crisis. Today, today, the federal government announced a GST rebate on unpurpose-built rent. Initially, it sounds like a reasonable policy. If you're going to build purpose rent apartment buildings and you're getting a financial incentive from the, the, the federal government, it sounds like a good thing. But now in the next days, we have to follow up and see whether there's going to be anything required of them. If there's going to be rent controls in any of those units, if there's anything whatsoever that is going to ensure that that incentive on the cost side actually going to become a direct lowering of the cost. And it might not. It might not. It might turn out just to increase the profit margins, right? So it's a self-serving argument, the supply and demand one. And that's why it's not going to go away. It doesn't matter. Like we, we can, I don't mean to be pessimist, but it, we can mount a lot of evidence. We can mount a lot of arguments, but it's such a sweet argument. Uh, and, and it's so directly self-serving that we, we're likely going to hear it for a long time. Yeah, one thing that I found really, um, like that really convinced me in your book uh, when you were talking about this point was you were sort of saying, okay, if supply and demand was really the thing, then we should see rents go down when the vacancy rate goes up. And in fact, there's it, there doesn't seem to be a relationship at all. Rents are just always going up, even when vacancy rates are up. I guess that part of the argument, you're, you say... Let's then turn the focus on to landlord profits. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that. I love to talk a lot more about this, but guess what? We have very little data on it. That's where this become a, a PR almost war, right? Public relations and communications war. Because for most part, landlords just cry poor and expect us to take their word for it. There is very little data on the margins of profit of landlords. And so when they come and say, ah, we have to raise rent. So their eyes, uh, we can't, we can't get by, you know, we won't make it. And it's like, show your box. Let, let me see your numbers, you know, and, and we don't, we don't have the data. We, uh, we're supposed to take the word for it. Um, there are very large share of the rental market stock, um, especially the, the purpose built apartment buildings that has already been paid off because those are older buildings. And unfortunately we stopped building them. And yet when interest rates go up, everyone is up in arms and say, oh, but my mortgage is like, oh, do you really have a mortgage? <laughs> and, 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 and sometimes they're more they're loans because they refinance for, for construction and, and, and renovations and so on. But like, there's so many times that you hear just the, the crime poor and you don't have the data. The real estate investment trusts, those are like, uh, there are a bunch of rules around them. And one of them is that they may have to make their finances public. And they also make their finances public because that's a way of attracting more investors. Can you just, before you go into that, can you just explain how those work? Real estate investment trusts, which we often call REITs, are a relatively new type of landlord. Instead of being a simple firm that owns and manages real estate and, and rental units and, 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 and tries to you know, kind of just maintain those units and, 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 and whose sole source of revenue is, is rental income. These are investors who come in, buy lots of buildings, and then they sell shares 
to investors. It can be pretty much anyone. Anyone can go online and through their financial institution, buy some shares of REITs. It can also sometimes be large investors. And we have a lot of our pension funds kind of playing that game. But anyways, they sell these shares and then they manage this asset, as they call it. And this asset is supposed to generate uh, two things. It's supposed to generate regular revenue which they will give back to net revenue, which they will pay back to their, to, to their investors. Uh, it's called distribution. And there's, they're also going to generate um, long-term capital gains because when you sell your shares, you're probably going to sell for a price higher than you, um, and you bought it. So you kind of also make money there. The, 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 the financial investor, in many ways, doesn't function as a, co- a common corporation, among other things. And most importantly, he doesn't need to pay business taxes, right? It's only the, the individual investors who have all of these little shares or sometimes a big pile of them that pay, uh, that pay taxes. Most of the taxes you pay as, as in personal income taxes and only a piece of it you pay as as uh, as capital gains so it is it is a much more aggressive type of, of of landlord usually and there's some research coming out that's corroborating that point and research especially from martin august at university of waterloo also nimoy lewis at the metropolitan university julie ma at university of toronto who beginning to 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 be able to show that these landlords are much more aggressive in, in their day-to-day practice because they have this pressure of generating quick returns and high margins of return. And often how they're going to do this is to what they call reposition their units. Reposition the unit is essentially finding a way uh, to get the current tenants out, give the place a facelift, and then rent to other uh, tenants who are willing to pay a lot more. And then in that flip, they make money. They manage to increase their distribution to their investors who are going to appreciate the higher return. Sometimes knowing that that's the result of evictions of families, most time um, they're actually not aware that that's what's happening. That's horrific and sounds like it should be illegal. What would happen if we just, this is not related to housing, but what would happen if we just shut the stock market down? <laughs> like the whole thing is just like, it's it's evil all the way down. I can't. <laughs> there is a proposal and, and it's the, the Canadian Center for Policy Alternative and our housing proposals and, and many others have called for the end of the special tax treatment of REITs. Um, there's actually one MP uh, and P. Michael Morris from the Green Party in, in sorry, I think it's Kitchener. Mike Morris is doing some good work there, and then he also trying to push for the the the, the end of the special treatment rates. In practice, what they're likely to happen is that they will become large corporate landlords. And so that is the question: Is that any better? I think overall it's better because I do not like the idea of so many individuals and families and 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 hardworking folks who are just you know, contributing to their pensions and you know kind of assuming or expecting or hoping that their pensions are doing some you know are not in the business of evicting other people i like them not to be you know involuntarily or and indirectly engaged in the landlord business the thing with brits is that i would give it to them they're way more transparent than corporate landlords not that they give <laughs> them about what we say about their figures um they're proud of it but at least provides us some insight into what i believe are not unique um, margins of profit or, or or unique practices i think it's not unique to this particular model i think um it's just an insight into what that world is again i think they have the resources and, and the capacity to to be more deliberate and more aggressive than in kind of smaller landlords. So yeah, I, overall, I think it would be better to, to get rid of them. But then actually, here's a funny story. The CEO of one of the largest REITs in the country called me once. And it was going to be a 10-minute conversation. It ended up being an hour conversation. And it was actually very interesting. We were very frank with each other. Let's just put it that way. And, and, and But we, we kind of got into the other's head a little bit, understanding you know, how each other thinks. And... At the end of it, he asked me, he's like, so Ricardo, why do you and Martin August and your colleagues 
come after us. You know, we're such a small share of, of the market overall, right? Shouldn't you be going after others? And I had to be honest with the guy. And I was like, you make it easy for us because there's all your data <laughs> out there. And, and you know, I know your books are open, whereas everyone else in this industry is so shady about and they're like, yeah, corporate landlords, the larger ones that we're competing with, they should also have to show their, you know, show their books. I was like, there you go. We can say we agreed on one thing today. And then I would just send the call there just to finish on a good, you know, on a good note. It's just so interesting to me because like the different kinds of landlords all seem to suck in different ways. Like corporate landlords, um, at least you've got some like level of standard. With like individual landlords, there's just such wide variation in like the jerks versus like good landlords. That's why tenant protections are so important, right? And and they're so absolutely important. And 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 one third of households rent. It can't be left to lock, you know. If you land with someone nice who, you know, brings you muffins in the morning and a butt of wine in the end of the year, or if you like or it's someone who is awful and is trying to evict you so they can make the next person pay more. It can't, it can't be left locked. And it's kind of interesting because, as you, as you know, like in the book, I, I try to draw a lot of little comparisons with the labor market, right, and with the labor movement because I think I find it useful uh, as, a, as a sort of like an educational tool because people kind of grasp that more, I think. Like you wouldn't, you know, say, ah, oh, there's no minimum wage. We're just going to, you know, good luck. Hope your boss is a good one. You know, if they make you work for three dollars, oh, that sucks. You know, I had a good one the other day who paid me fourteen. Like, it wouldn't allow for that, right? And so, it's really important to have like standard protections and enforceable protections, so so that everyone kind of like you know have something that um, that they can rely on. Yeah, I mean, I think that might be a good point to to talk a little bit about why it's important to think about tenants and landlords as different classes. So, can you talk about that? Yes, I think the, the whole impetus behind the book is 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 to politicize housing. I think the the, the, the depolarization of depoliticization of housing it's not helpful, and it, it's actually a very deliberate um, strategy from from the real estate industry to be constantly portraying you know the relationship between landlord and and and, and tenants as kind of as something of that kind of happens at the private sphere you know you and your landlord will get along and you chat and you sort it out and the landlord likes to having good tenants and you're always portraying this as a sort of like amico and and and, and private relationship right and then you portray landlords and kind of the mom and pop landlords and you, you kind of give them the aura also of, of, of a family of a small business you know someone just kind of that just like their tenants they're also kind of struggling to get by and that's why they need to rent these places i think we need to, to really move away from that and, and think more about you know bosses and workers and to acknowledge that there's a power dynamic there's an immense imbalance of power between the two sides and that their interests are opposing you know one wants more rent the other wants to pay less rent and that um you know we have kind of laws and regulations in place but they're not neutral they're they're you know laws regulations they tend to side with the more powerful more influence player and in our case often not all the case but often ends with on the side of of landlords so i i think it's really important to, to politicize the relationship so that we can start talking about political solutions and, and, and understand policy failures as very successful policies that achieved their desirable outcome of protecting the landed class. That makes me think about this. There was a study I saw in Toronto years ago. Maybe maybe you remember it, but basically they were somebody was polling renters and homeowners on like the fact that housing prices in Toronto were going up and it was like homeowners love it renters hate it <laughs> it's like what's more emblematic of like the different interests than that I guess <laughs> yeah yes when you add homeowners to the to the conversation it's kind of like a group in the middle there somewhere right now they are benefiting from the rising value of of houses and a lot of 
people are now counting on this, right? And um, and it's kind of like a separate conversation, but it has a lot to do with the fact that we don't have pension plans. And it's it's one of the most important parts of this conversation, I think, and the one that we kind of don't talk enough about. Part of this, we you know, when we talk about the financialization of housing, a lot of kind of academic shitheads like myself or others, like we talk about, you know, the sort of the big moves in, in financial uh, liberalization and, and the flow of capital and then the 2008 crisis and, and then the real estate investment charts emerging. That's kind of like what we think about. But it also happened at a much more household level, right? Where, where for me, there's a distinction between a working family they put down a like a put a payment down on a house and then they paid throughout you know the, the active working years and and they of course they expected to they're hoping to finish paying the mortgage by the time they retire um, because that will provide them housing security that will provide them some financial security right so that that's one kind of like yes it's a commodity yes it's a sort of an asset kind of the counting on it's allowing the family to build some financial security because they know that if they cannot age in place, they can actually sell the house for a decent amount of money, and that's what's going to help to finance some alternative living that they need. You know, it provides some security. That is one thing. Now, to put that down payment and expect your house to triple, quadruple in value, because you're going to expect to cash really, you have no other retirement plan, you don't have, you know, any uh, other kind of cushion because all your money went into your house but you're expecting it to like triple quadruple in 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 value so you're gonna sell and you're gonna cash big on it or yet you're gonna at some point halfway through your mortgage you're gonna borrow against it and then get that money and you're gonna put a down payment in that condo somewhere and you're just gonna rent it and then let the tenants pay that mortgage for you so when you you know at the end of your active years and have this big, you know, house that with all of this money and that's one big pot of money. And then you also have the other condo that someone paid for you. And then you also get that, you know, that's a very different kind of, so, so that's kind of like a financialization happened to, but more of the household level, right? So yeah, I'm not saying that having good pension plans prevent people from doing it. I think some would still go there, but would make people a lot less, invested in housing as their um, and and when you look at the, the the stats for for pension plans right the public sector averages still hold but in the private sector you know it has been declining steady yeah no i mean i think that that's that's really true i and i have to imagine that like part of the skittishness around like governments in terms of addressing the like value of housing also has to do with like the scenario where you have seniors on fixed incomes with no pensions, like what happens to them if the housing market crashes. So yeah, if, if there was more of a safety net and more people had, had pensions, then probably it would be easier to unwind that a little bit. But it also goes to your point about why it's so important to like politicize this issue, because it really is about like the distribution of wealth in society and how much value we allow people to acquire um, and how much we allow them to extract literal rents from other people <laughs> to do so. And the distribution aspect and the, the inequality aspect, hopefully there's going to be some major political moves and there's going to be some, there'll be some changes from here to, you know, the next 20 or 30 years. But if there isn't, what we're going to see more and more is the intergenerational transfer of wealth that's going to have a very palpable impact in our imaginary of, of Canada, of this, this notion of, you know, middle-class society where there's social mobility and, you know, a lot of racialized folks and, and a lot of women who have to deal with all sorts of barriers and, on, on, on the labor market and, and um, immigrants who don't always integrate so easily uh, because, you know, a number of factors they 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 are less likely to to believe in that middle class uh, social mobility dream, but there's still a, a big chunk of our population that, that that holds on to 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 that idea. But when we get into a context where wages don't buy houses, 
Yeah, I'm always like a little worried that I think about this just because um, like Thomas Piketty is constantly in my head, but it really does feel like we're barreling towards the Victorian era again in this sense, like where you really can only get ahead if you have land already um, or your family does. (laughs) Um, All right, let's maybe turn towards something a little bit hopefully more optimistic, which is tenant organizing as a solution. Um, So can you talk a little bit about the history of tenant organizing in Canada? Because your book makes the great point that it's not at all new. Yes, that's one of my favorite chapters in the book. I love social history. My earlier academic work looked at the history of social movements in Brazil and how some of them managed to pull it off all sorts of interesting direct democracy experiments uh, under the the military regime. So I, I love that stuff. And I find it incredibly important to, to tell the history of social movements, tell the history of everyday struggles, and tell the history of just people coming together and accomplishing all sorts of things and supporting each other and resisting all sorts of horrible things. Our history, it's told in a way that it's so boring, most importantly, but also so detrimental to to collective um, action, right? Because always this great man doing something, and then he talks to another great man, and then great man to great man decide to do something great, you know? And and it's just oh my god, like this really, this is how you know history happened, and it's not right. So it's it's, so it's really I find it really important to 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 bring that stuff back in and, and to talk about it and it's incredibly hard to find information on it and you know it's there right you talk to folks and someone knows of something or something or something but to find actual documents and written accounts it's really difficult because our movements are so poorly resourced right people are working 10 hours a day and then picking up the kids and preparing dinner and then you know putting the kids to bed and then they're going to do something at eight o'clock at night and then it's already 11 o'clock midnight they have to go to back and start again and no one you know has time oh let me you know let me write this down it's really important i'm nerd from 20 years from now we're gonna to want to write about it uh so so there's not a lot of written and and, and, and evidence and, and documentation about all of these amazing struggles so yeah i i there's a chapter that focuses a little bit on this and it's just you know a very small sample of, of pieces and bits of that story but I, I found it important to to document it to to share what I learned yeah I'm curious if you can talk a little bit sort of about just for somebody that hasn't really heard about tenant organizing in any way what are some of the main ways that tenants can organize and what are some of the key strategies that they can adopt First, important to remind everyone that I'm not an organizer myself. I organize mostly decimal points and semi-columns, but I have researched this enough, and, and I spend now enough time with organizers that I'm learning a little bit more about it, but not too differently from, from, from labor organizing, right? It always starts very local, you know, it always starts, you know, at the, at the, the, usually with tenant organizing, it's in buildings. It's the most common place where organizing is going to start. It will be the equivalent of the kind of the factory floor, you know, or, or, or the, 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 the coffee, the Starbucks shop, you know, and, and, in in the kitchen or something like that. And, and usually it's also in response to a rent increase. That was too high in response to some maintenance that wasn't dealt with or in response to the fact that one of the tenants is being um, evicted or pushed out for whatever reason and then you know a group of folks said no that's not fair we, we don't we're gonna have to go and talk to this landlord and people kind of know that the power dynamics in that relationship always favored the landlord right so one tenant shows up to challenge the landlord on something, it's difficult. But, you know, if 20 of them show up, the outcome might be different. Um, and so so that's kind of the very basic principle of it. And as I said, it's, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. But sometimes, you know, it grows from there. It goes into other organizations and and that first act of, of mobilization against one particular incident 
um, sometimes that grows into a more permanent form of, of organizing, of organization and of organizing. Um, and then sometimes you create, you know, associations, associations, associations or groups, or more recently, it, there's more of a tendency to call it tenant unions. And then some, some of, of these groups are organizing in, in similar ways of, of like labor unions in that they will have like the, the local chapter or the local tenant association and they kind of have like an umbrella organization. So one of the examples that I'm closest to and, and that I talk about in the book is the York Southwestern Tenant Union in Toronto. And they have, you know, various tenants associations, which are usually a building um, and usually known by the address of that building. Uh, so it's 33 King or 22 John or so on and so forth. And there are, you know, tenants associations with them. And then each one usually have like two or three tenants that are most active. And, and, and they're kind of like the delegates of, of that particular building. And then there's the tenant union for the entire area. So the delegates, you know, will meet regularly. And then so they can talk strategy for there as a whole. And whenever one of them, has a, a problem or is in a in a fight, um, all of them will try and show up for it and, and, and support. It is in, in some ways similar to, to, to unions. In other places, like in Quebec, there's a long tradition of having very local comité de logement, which is like also kind of like a tenant association that deals with, with a building or a street or, or a particular very kind of local context and then they have a couple umbrella sort of associations or actually the right name is like coalitions that will pick fights uh on a larger scale and then sometimes will not constrain themselves just to be uh defending and, and fighting back but will try to be more proactive on on political issues that uh, concern tenants one of the strategies that you talked about in the book um, is going on a rent strike. And I'm just wondering if you can describe what that is and maybe give an example of um, an instance where that has worked. Strike. The general idea is that property owners have assets that generate revenues and you interrupt the flow of revenues so that you catch their attention, you force them to come to the negotiation table and, and try to come to some sort of agreement. The difference is that with unionized workplaces, workers have the right to a collective bargaining process, and the process has many steps, and strikes are actually very rare because things usually get sorted out, you know, at some point in that process. With tenants, what happens is that they do not have the right to collective bargaining. And so as soon as they say, we like to negotiate. We like to to talk about this this latest rent increase because too much we can't pay it. Um, landlords just say, "Nah, we're not going to talk about it." Um, you either pay it, or if you fall into arrears and you don't pay it, I'm going to evict you. So the bargaining process is very short, and boom, you go to a rent strike because there's no other alternative, right? So it, 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 there, is a, there is a number of rent strikes throughout Canadian history. Some were successful, some were not. Um, right now, we have three rent strikes in Toronto. These are buildings owned by PSP Investments, which is a crown corporation and the pension fund of federal employees. And the whole area is managed by Starlight who is the asset manager for PSP Investments. And since May, tenants are on strike because um, Starlight, on behalf of PSP Investments, applied for above guideline rent increases. Rents are going to go up by an average of 10% over two years. Tenants said it's too much, let's negotiate. Starlight said, no, we don't want to negotiate. We will not negotiate with organized tenants. If individuals think that it's too much, they can apply for for repayment plans or, or some sort of, of support, but we will not negotiate with organized tenants. So that's where the the fight is right now. Tenants are starting to, to receive eviction notices. Some of the hearings are coming up. Um, so if anyone wants to check them out online, the Thorncliffe Park Drive 
Brain Strike. They have a GoFundMe page, which might be really helpful because fighting the evictions notes costs money, and it's money that obviously the, the tenants themselves don't have, or if, if they pay it, it's going to come at the detriment of other basic necessities for their families. There's another rent strike in New York Southwest and Tenant Union. Same thing with the above guideline rent increases. There's one build that received a bunch of them and tenants just at some point said it's enough. You know, our rents are going up by too much, way too much, way more than the average. So they were on rent strike since June. Another building joining in July, a building that has no rent controls because in Ontario, if a building is occupied after, first occupied after November of 2018, there is no rent controls whatsoever. So rents are going up by too much. Rents are on, tenants are on strike as well. There are possibly other buildings coming on board in Toronto um, of the rent strike as well. Yeah, I mean, the rent is too damn high. So I can see why uh, <laughs> there's so many rent strikes happening right now. Uh, one thing that the book talks about is sort of these organizations that take shape um, after they're sort of like smaller level organizing that sometimes go up to like the city level um, and sometimes the neighborhood level and take on wider political causes in some cases. I'm wondering if there are like any interesting cases of those that you'd want to highlight or any sort of lessons that you've learned. Yeah, there are different strategies. Some, some groups decide to just focus on one geographical area and build a lot of tenant working class power in that one particular area, right? They they think that this is the best and most promising strategy to defend working class, to defend the tenants and, and, and the working class and tenants. And and sort of to be ready to essentially support each other no matter what gets thrown at them. It might be a, an increase in rent, it might be uh, cuts in transit that the community relies on. It may be the large employer in the area suppressing wages. It may be the government trying to displace them. There's you know a number of things that may happen in any given time. And, and in this perspective, the best thing we can do is just to build power to unite the community. And you know, come what may, we're going to be ready to put a fight and, and to have each other's back. In other cases, the sort of tenants associations is start, you know, grouping and soon kind of form something of a, at that kind of neighborhood level, or and then sometimes they go um, at the city level, and sometimes even at the provincial level, start engaging in, in provincial politics. And the rationale there, and and I already mentioned the cases with Quebec, right? The the rationale in Quebec, for example, in the late nineteen seventies. There's a lot of these tenant associations that had been formed and had dealt one way or another with with a bunch of displacements and and kind of modernization projects where the city just kind of wanted to move people away from where they were to kind of make something pretty, put something pretty in place and look modern and so on. And so there's a lot of fights in the 1960s and 1970s it's just kind of against city policies. And what I gathered from, from the research that I did is that at some point, tenants were just kind of like tired of re- like reacting all the time. And they said, no, we, we got to get ahead of this. You know, we got to have our own agenda. We got to push for policies and, and, and programs and, and overall get a political power that sets the agenda and, and, and changed a little bit the the hemenagement, the, the the urban planning more broadly. And so that's when they kind of created two broader organizations that would have a little bit of that mandate of not just fighting back at the local level, but also kind of putting up a fight at this other spheres of power, right? Um, and yeah, so so I think there's there's a few different models there to and then, you know, it's sort of on the ground, folks will, will decide what, what, where they want to go and what's most important for them and what they can do, right? Because, again, resources is always a, um, a big challenge. Yeah. I'm curious for, for a listener who maybe is just achieving class consciousness as a tenant, what would you recommend uh, that they could do to get started? What I'd say is there's a lot of organizing happening that um, you may not be aware of. 
And so the first thing is to go out there and, and to reach out to either a tenant union or tenant group that is not in necessarily in your neighborhood, but it's somewhere nearby and then talk to them, ask if they know who's been watching your area or if there is any sort of like larger social movement that you have a contact with, even if it's not a housing movement or a tenant movement per se, reach out. They will know, you know, people and they might help you to connect to um, go on the social media. You know, it might, that's one thing it might be useful for. After all, you know, try to find groups. There, there's a lot of happening right there. And you may feel kind of a little bit isolated and you may feel that it's kind of only you and your landlord, but, but there's, there's people there and, and you just kind of have to find them. And once you find, you're going to be able to join. All right. So to kind of like finish us off here, can I read some of my favorite spicy comments from your book? <laughs> <laughs> the first one is, it's not really a crisis if it has lasted more than a century and large sectors of the population wouldn't have it any different, is it? <laughs> So good. Uh, and then right like on the next page, I have never seen an example of elites giving up power and wealth because the experts came up with a bright idea. <laughs> <laughs> I was like snapping along to it. I was like, hell yeah. <laughs> and then I really liked this other this other part here. You were talking about well, I'll just read the quote, which is that capital double dips on tenant families by paying low wages from which high rents are subtracted. And I, I just, I was like, wow, that's a perfect sentence. <laughs> <laughs> and it's happened more and more now with the financialization of housing. We're seeing some of the conglomerates that, you know, were active in the grocery business, for example, now also owning houses. So it will, in some cases now it's, actually the same firm that suppresses wages and charges high rents from the same people cool Caleb Weston. <laughs> <laughs> what a fun story <laughs> i actually have one final question that i like to ask people which is um if i were i'm going to lend you like a magic wand and you can fix the housing problems in Canada with my magic wand. What what would you do? What would what would be like overnight? What would you, what would you do to fix to fix everything? Please <laughs> move profit out of it. Yeah, I guess that's pretty much the only thing, right? Like as soon as you stop making a profit on housing, it's it stops being a problem. <laughs> and interestingly, and just sort of to provide a counter argument to the counter argument. Often when we say we need to build more non-market housing, when we need to move profit out of housing, there's some disingenuous comeback to that and say, wow, governments can't pay for this forever. But like they don't, right? Like the, the, the housing, it's not comparable in some ways with education and health where you have an ongoing operational cost, right? With a lot of non-market housing, um, and that's for rental, but that's also for, it could be also for ownership, people pay back. People pay. People continue to pay rent, and, and or people continue to pay uh, their mortgages on, on 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 houses that were built for for people with low and moderate income. It is just the it's just the profit margin that you you push out of it. So there's needs to be some sort of investment from governments, and usually it's the federal government because they they have the kind of the financing capacity for that. Though provincial governments can do a lot of stuff there too. So that they need to come first and then put down some some large sums of money so you can build stuff or you can acquire existing stock. But once people move in, they pay, they do pay rent, you know, in, in non-market housing, they do pay rent in co-ops and, and, and people, you know, we haven't had a, a like moderate income ownership kind of program for a long time in this country. But, but when we do have those, people do pay the mortgage and the loans back to, to government, right? So the, the government just has its role is to, to do that initial investment and then to, to wait for people to pay back. And, and, and with the, in the case of non-market housing, um, then the rent is becomes sufficient to, to, to cover maintenance and, and utilities and the upkeeping of the building, all of this. It works. We have so many examples that it work and it's not some sort of socialist utopia. You know, in every city, in almost, you know, 
every neighborhood in all the major cities, you bump into housing that is non-for-profit, that is well-run, that is good quality, and that doesn't carry an ongoing operational cost to, to any level of government, right? You know, it's there. It's a very concrete example. So yes, remove profit out of housing. It's possible. We do it every day. It exists. The examples are all there. Just walk around and you see them. But thank you. Thank you for this invitation. It's been great to, to talk to you. Thank you for the very flattering comments about the book. I, I sat down mostly because, as, as I mentioned, I, uh, my job is to move in commas and send columns around. And I see the, the tenant movement gaining strength and, and, and I'm close enough to see the immense amount of work and the immense amount of energy and sacrifice uh, from, on the part of those involved, the immense amount of risk that they're going, they're taking, those who are on a rent strike. And yes, I was just kind of trying to figure out a way that I could more directly support the movement to contribute to this amazingly courageous people who are doing so much good work. And, and yes, and then I wrote a two-page backgrounder and I said, you know, I thought I was writing this. Do you guys think it would be useful? And I circulated to a bunch of tenant groups across the country and I got a really positive feedback and they said, yes, write it. It's going to be helpful. It's going to be a resource. We need, we need this in, in, in articulated in, 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 in writing and, and it's going to help us. And I was like, sure, if, if you think it's going to help you guys, I can go ahead and, and do this because that's what I know how to do it. And, 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 I, and I tell that story also by way of encouraging anyone who is in, in research and, and, and advocacy on, on writing to do work that is for tenants and not about tenants. The work that is about tenants, it's often not very useful to the movements uh, themselves. It's, I think, a, a more fruitful approach to reach out, to ask folks, what can I do? How can I help? And do just that. Like it's, it's, it's my Latin Americanist coming through it because um, in Brazil, it was very, very clear that anyone in, in a research and writing position takes direction from the movements and not the other way around. Support your local bookstore and go buy this book. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for ending on a positive note with us. I feel like the solution to this is not that complicated, but I love this discussion about all of the different ways that people can organize to make their their locals their local areas better. So thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. I hope this was useful.